0: Turn with me or listen on as I read now the conclusion of uh, the events in the city Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were for those two Sabbaths, remembering what we read last time. Uh, in fact, uh, I think I'll begin in verse 42 just to remind you, but the new material begins in verse 44. So beginning in verse 42, Acts chapter 13, so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and Contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles for the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord And as many as had been appointed to eternal to eternal life believed and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them uh, from their region. But they shook off uh, the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy And with the Holy Spirit, and let us pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you once more for your word. We acknowledge it as the very words of life to us, and where else would we go? To where else or what else would we turn? Lord, you have the words of life. We continue to seek that life from you and pray that you might bless us by these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, noting the connection between uh, verses 42 and 43 with what we read in verses 44 and following, we saw that last time uh, they read or or they preached rather a sermon. Paul preached a sermon and uh, there was this general enthusiasm and they begged that uh, these two men might come back the next Sabbath and preach to them. Again, so come back, they said, and and, well, in verse 44, we have the account of what happened on the next Sabbath. What we notice in verses 44 through 52, which uh, admittedly for Acts is a very small chunk of narrative. uh, There is something unusual about these verses, at least to me. We, we find a series of events tightly packed together, which contain a series of points, all of which have a scriptural basis. What I am saying is that these verses, some nine verses, are some of the most theologically packed narrative uh, that we find in all of the Bible, not just in Acts, but in all of the Bible, I would say there is at least one major theological point which is being made in every verse. And so here, instead of finding one sustained idea, which so often you do and so often the sermon is seeking to highlight for you. It's more like a cluster of uh, a cluster of ideas tightly packed together. And it's especially noteworthy, once again, how the outline uh, that we are finding in Romans chapters 9 and 10 is set before our eyes here in the book of Acts, especially in Acts chapter 13. Not simply the emphasis on uh, preaching and hearing and faith and justification. All of those things are present, but so too are the ideas of uh, the Jewish underwhelming reception of the gospel, I I think maybe that's a better way to put it, because it's not fair to say, and I'll I'll argue this later, that it was rejection in total. It wasn't. But an underwhelming reception, while on the other hand, by the way, we call that underwhelming reception the remnant. But on the other hand, you have this overwhelming and really uh, it would seem from the standpoint of the Jews, quite surprising reception reception by the Gentiles. Now that is what's playing out here. You don't just read about uh, the ideas in Romans, but you see it actually happening in history. And so once again, we see how Acts and Romans are tracking together. But another passage that really tracks tightly with what we're reading in these verses uh, in an amazing way is Matthew 10, which we read earlier. You even find uh, that the same exact language, such as, Uh, Those who were unworthy, Jesus says, if you enter into a town and and they're unworthy of you, shake off the dust and leave. That's exactly what these men do. And and uh, and that's what we'll see in this sermon. So I want to consider the sequence of of events which will contain a sequence of points. And the first of that uh, first of those rather is. The gathering of the crowds on the next Sabbath. Uh, it's amazing uh, to see the picture here. And we can only long to see this in our own day. Where there's so little interest in the preaching of the gospel. But here was a day in which there was such a general excitement. That the whole town gathered together. Uh, and, and it isn't altogether clear. Did they all pack together into the synagogue? Or was it open air preaching? I, I, I don't, I don't uh, see any evidence, one way or the other. But the point is, the whole town came together to hear the word of God. This is very similar to what we see in the preaching of Jesus. We see Jesus preaching to crowds. We see the crowds following him, even as they were following uh, the apostles. Here, we read uh, that. Let Let me just turn. This is going to be the first of many, many texts that I read this evening. And I want to read it just to be sure I've got it right. Mark chapter 12 verse 37. Well, I have the wrong reference. Or was it Matthew? Let me just turn there to be sure. Matthew chapter 12 verse 37. Nope, my text is uh, my notes are wrong. Uh, the sense is uh, the what is said in whatever text it is that I don't seem to know. The common people heard him gladly. Now, the picture is that the Jews, and we'll see this in a moment here as well, the Jews, the religious leaders, the the philosophers. So it it wasn't just excluded uh, to the Jewish setting, uh, but it, it would seem the elites were always opposed to what Jesus was saying or the apostles were saying. But here, the common people, the regular folk were interested in what he had to say. Uh, very similar to what we have in the Sermon on the Mount. The, the picture there is of a, a large crowd gathering to hear Jesus. And they were astonished at his teaching. He taught us one with authority. Let me just say this again to, to people who are familiar, all too familiar with the doctrine of the remnant. My next point is about opposition and the following point will be on persecution. But let us see, and this is what Luke is always telling us. That the story of the gospel is not a story of universal rejection. It's not a story of universal opposition. But that very often uh, the the, the kingdom of God has conquered entire towns. People, uh, we read of this in days of revival. Entire towns being converted unto Jesus. And and, um, the religious leaders never being too happy about that. Because they were being displaced. That's the picture we have here. Let us realize that. Uh, there will always be success and sometimes there will be general and widespread success. Uh, when I read this about uh, Paul, uh, the, the whole town coming together, I can't help but think of the preaching of George Whitfield. Well, again, the point here is the crowds are gathering is that the gospel is for the common person. It's not something for the learned and the elite. It's something for all men everywhere. Haven't I been saying that? And because it's for all men everywhere, it is capable of generating this kind of interest and it has done so many times in history. And so I think it is reasonable for us to look for something like that in our own day to pray to God that we would see similar results that many, many would gather to hear the preaching of the gospel. And we shouldn't always expect uh, that nearly everyone would reject it. But on the other side, there is the reality of rejection. And so that's the second point, Jewish opposition. You have two sides of the picture here as Luke is always painting it and so is history. The the crowds are gathering, but the Jews saw the multitudes. They were filled with envy, contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. There's the other side. And we need to see both sides, not just that they were the Jews, but the leaders or I call them the elites, whatever you want to call them. They resented losing their grasp on the multitudes. These, as Jewish uh, uh, representatives of Judaism, resented how easily these Jews, the apostles, made it for anyone to become a full member of God's household. If you think of the synagogue in those days uh, in the same way as we think of the church, imagine if suddenly, well the church was something that was uh, difficult to to join, and suddenly these new teachers came along and invited the common person in and said, you know, it's actually easy. It's just as simple as this. You, you need to turn from your sin and believe on Christ and be baptized and you will be a full member of the church. And the people heard this gladly. But, well, the Jews were not so happy about that. And we might wonder ourselves how we, how we would feel if suddenly the whole town gathered and disrupted this little fellowship we have here. That's how the Jews felt in that day. They were not happy. They resented them for this. They resented them for the abolition of the old distinctions. Again, not by the ceremonial law, not by the law of Moses, but simply by this. This is the only requirement. Faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. You're a Christian. Well, they were not happy about this. Not at all. And let me just say the legalist never is. Who was the Jew in this picture? The Jew was the legalist. And you can always tell, well, you can always tell when the gospel is being preached rightly because it arouses the animosity and the hatred and the opposition of the legalists. Well, here these men were enraging the legalists, and I say, good, good. Not only were they filled with envy, because, again, they had claimed the allegiance of the people, but we read that they were contradicting the message and they were blaspheming, opposing what was spoken By him, something I spoke of earlier this morning, not just the indifference, but the animosity that the gospel, the hearing of the gospel arouses in the heart of the unbeliever. Matthew Henry says commonly those who begin with contradicting end up blaspheming. That is why it's always a dangerous thing to try to oppose the things of God. There is always a moral element. And before long, you may very well be blaspheming the name of the Lord. Well, the language that is used here, and again, this is one of so many surprising parallels, is almost exactly. He says, Luke tells us not only that they were filled with enmity, but, but they were contradicting. What does uh, what does God say to Israel all day long? This is Romans 10:21. We'll look at it next week. All day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. The picture here is exactly what we have here. The Lord sending his messengers, the prophets, the Lord Jesus, and then the apostles to the Jews all day long. He's been stretching out his hand, but they never were willing to listen. Uh, You always, as Stephen says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That was the whole long history of Israel. You rejected the prophets. You rejected Jesus Christ, your Messiah. You rejected the apostles all day long. God says, I've been stretching out my hands to you, but all day long. That is, every day you've been contradicting the message. You see, it isn't just they were ignoring it, but they were contradicting it. And that is exactly what we see here. They stood opposed to it. Their mind and their mouths were filled with arguments against it. The message was being preached to them, but they not only did not receive it, but they contradicted it and blasphemed the message they heard. Uh, At the very end of Acts, by the way, we see the Apostle Paul reflecting on this after his long ministry to the Jews. Everywhere he went, he always started out with the Jews. And yet he says this again, no surprise, quoting Isaiah beginning and this is the end of Acts, verse 25. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through the Isaiah uh, through Isaiah, the prophet to our father saying, go to this people hearing you will not hear. And shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes have closed and and on and on. We could go. We have too many scriptures to read for me to read that full scripture. You get the point. The picture here was again. Remember, this is it wasn't Paul's first sermon, but it was one of his first sermons. It's the first recorded sermon here. He's begun his missionary journey. And yet already he's realizing this about the Jews. Let us see this. This is what Paul is making clear to us in Romans and what Luke is making clear to us uh, in Acts, and that is that though this seemed surprising or, or, or perhaps could seem surprising, it really wasn't surprising, not from the standpoint of Scripture. And more and more, Paul was beginning to see this himself. This was the very thing that God had predicted by the prophets that the Jewish people would reject the gospel Well as a third point we find in the face of Jewish opposition bold proclamation Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said and we'll leave things there because the second part of the verse is the next point let me tell you what Matthew Henry has to say about that but when adversaries of Christ cause are daring its advocates should be the bolder And while many judge themselves unworthy of eternal life, others who appear less likely desire to hear more of the glad things of salvation, glad tidings of salvation. This is according to what was foretold in the Old Testament. You see, even Matthew Henry is seeing the same thing. I hope you're seeing it that I'm seeing. All of this is just as it was foretold. He goes on. What light, what power, what a treasure does this gospel bring with it? How excellent are its truths, its precepts, its promises. Those come to Christ Whom the father drew and to whom the spirit made the gospel call effectual. Well, didn't Jesus tell them again, thinking of Matthew 10, that though they would be opposed, they must go on proclaiming the message anyways. Don't become discouraged. Don't become demoralized. Don't become defeated or depressed. Go on. Preaching. Preach to whoever will listen to you. Some won't, some will. Go on preaching. Uh, proclaim it, he says, from the rooftops. Don't let them stop you. When the adversaries of Christ's cause are daring, its advocates should be the bolder. What a wonderful line that is. But as the next point, we see the priority of the Jews. It was necessary, they said, that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Here, uh, what they are saying is not just a matter of policy, for so it was. It was always the policy of Paul to begin in the Jewish synagogues, wherever he went. And we see him doing this to the end of his ministry. But it wasn't just a matter of policy. It was a matter of scripture. The thing was necessary, for God had given the Jew the priority, which Paul himself expresses like this. Uh, The gospel is the power of God to save to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And because of this. Not only uh, do we find the gospel coming to the Jew first always in the missionary journeys of the apostles. But we also see that God would always preserve among the Jews a remnant. There would always be some who would believe men uh, like Paul. And we find the Apostle Paul reflecting on this in Romans chapter nine, but especially in Romans chapter 11. We don't have time to read that, but but that's uh, what you find. And you can find it there if you wish, uh, because most reject it. We find a fifth point, and that is the Jewish faith as a people, as a nation. Well, the gospel comes to you first, but since you reject it. And judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I've set you as a light to the Gentiles. That you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Again, Matthew 10 comes to mind here. I referenced this earlier. And again, we note how uh, scripture is uh, harmonizing the word unworthy. You judge yourselves unworthy. You reject the gospel. Here they went to a town, just as Jesus said, and the hearers were unworthy of the message. We find something similar at the end of Romans chapter 9, the beginning of Romans chapter 10. They, they, they were wise in their own eyes. They would not submit to the righteousness of God. The, the, the side of things that we see in those three places here in Acts 13, Matthew chapter 10, uh, the end of Romans chapter 9 is the side of human Responsibility. The fact that when a man rejects the gospel, well, you can say this to him. You reject it. Isn't that what Stephen said? Again, you're always rejecting the message of the gospel. Or as the Lord says in Romans chapter 10, uh, quoting uh, one of the prophets, I'm stretching out my hands. You all day long. I was pleading with you, but you stood against it. You refused to be saved. Uh, so much. So much of that will come out in, in the following. Morning Sermon. But but even beyond that, and this is the thing that amazes me, but it just shows how little the Jews understood their own scripture, uh, quoting the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 49, verse six. I've set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And, and by the way, didn't the Lord say that to Abraham? Wasn't the picture to Israel always a cosmic one through you? All the families would be blessed. This was Israel's calling. And Paul is saying how tragic it is, how tragic it is that you have missed your calling. You should have rejoiced to see the Gentiles gathering in at the message of Israel's Messiah being proclaimed. But as it is, since you refuse to assume that calling, well, we we turn to the Gentiles. If the Jews will not bring the Gentiles in, then God will do it without them. Do you appreciate the tragedy of that, especially for a man like Paul to say this one whose heart was breaking for Israel in Romans chapters 9, 10 and 11? Come to a sixth point. We find sovereign salvation. We saw it this morning when the Gentiles heard this. They were glad and glorified the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Here's the other side. You have human responsibility on one side. Romans chapter 10, if the Jews Or any man are unworthy recipients of salvation, that doesn't mean that the Gentiles or anyone who does believe it is worthy. That's not the other side of the coin, not from the standpoint of the gospel and the preaching of the gospel. You see, this is actually how it works out. This is the scriptural teaching. The scriptural teaching is that when a man rejects the gospel, he proves himself unworthy of it. And Jesus often uses that language. Those who would not follow him are not worthy of him. But when a man is saved, you see, it doesn't work in the other direction. You misunderstand grace if you think this. When a man is saved, he doesn't get any of the credit. Let me say it again. If the Jews were unworthy, that didn't mean that the Gentiles were worthy. No, that isn't how this works out. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. What made the difference? It was God. All of God. Salvation is His doing. By grace you've been saved, not of yourselves. Or Romans chapter 9 comes to mind here when we read what He says, or Romans chapter 8. This is a sovereign salvation which we discover includes the Gentiles. Why? Well, because it was the will of God. It didn't matter what the Jews thought. What matters is what God wanted. And God had expressed, even in the Old Testament, his desire to save Gentiles. So that was the only thing that mattered. And the way that this sovereign salvation Proceeded was through as we have seen the hearing of faith. The Gentiles heard this and they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. Do you see how much that comports with what we've been reading? Here were the glad tidings of good things being preached to them and they were glad. Do you want to know what faith is? The hearing of faith is it's the gladness of the heart. The the man who values the gospel is satisfying. That's William Guthrie. The man who begins to glorify the Lord, he worships God because of what he's heard or to use the language of Romans chapter 10. This is and and nine. This is someone who has submitted to the message. He's accepted it. He's not contradicting it any longer. The Lord says, will you be saved in this way? And he says, I will be saved in this way. Yes, Lord, I'm submitting to you. I'm obeying the gospel summons. I repent and believe. You see, the word of God, it's so evident here, the word of God had changed them. It came to them as the power of God to save. To one, the aroma of death. To the other, the aroma of life. How do we account for this difference? Well, I'll just keep on saying it. It wasn't that the Jews were so awful and the Gentiles were so great. The only answer is the sovereign choice of God himself. The God who hardens whom he wills. The God who shows mercy to whom he wills. Do you see that, beloved, in the calling of the Gentiles? Do you see that in God's calling of you? Even as he rejected his people of old. The people of the Old Testament. But keep going and you find more scripture being confirmed. The word of God was heard abroad. Verse 49. And the word of God was being spread throughout all the region. Well, you say that's just a throwaway statement. No, it isn't. That's another important doctrinal thing that we find the Apostle Paul a stating in, uh, in, in Romans chapter 10. And not to mention what our Lord says in Matthew 10. He's telling them, well, I want you to go abroad. Or, or, Acts chapter 1. I want you to go abroad. Remember what he says about the gospel. Again, quoting the prophets. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Romans 10, 11. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 13. But most importantly, and we'll see this next time in the morning, I, I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, the sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. You see, in a sense, what Paul will say and we'll see is how well, how shall they hear without a preacher? But you see, they have heard the word of God has gone out. It's become well known. In other words, the word of God to use the language of Jesus is not something that is hid under a basket No, God isn't doing that. He's causing the light to shine. He's causing it to be heard broadly, even to the ends of the earth, so that if men are saved, it is not for a lack of hearing, at least not in most cases. Again, underscoring human responsibility. The word is going forth, but men are rejecting it still. But not only that, we could also say about this word that was going abroad, how the kingdom of God is something that man can never stop. It's spreading. It always is. We think uh, perhaps the light has begun to go out even in our own day, but it never does. It always keeps going. But it's not just even that. It's not just that it's still shining, but it's spreading. It's like 11. It's like 11, the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13. Let me read those words. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. uh, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it's grown, it's greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till all was leavened. You can't stop the gospel from spreading. Let us see that and let us be encouraged by that thought. But let us also see now as an eighth point that the world will try. It will do everything it can. It always has done everything it can. There will always be opposition. There will always be persecution. And I think it's fair to say we face it. We we face it even today. Uh, it's just, uh, as Martin Lloyd Jones says, it's a much politer form. <laughs> it's less, it's less, well, less blood is shed, at least for now. But, but surely we can see that as the word goes forth, that man is always doing all that he can to stop it. Verse 50. And let us see, this is nothing new. The Jews. The word was going abroad, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. This is something that proved costly. They were preaching abroad, but they were they were paying for it with their own blood, most likely. This was likely a painful experience for them. But do you see how our Lord predicts this? In Matthew 10, I I send you out as sheep among wolves. They will oppose you. They'll even try to hunt you down, he seems to be saying. Or he does say they'll, they'll throw you in prison for this. But do you see what else we see in the next verse? They shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. Well, didn't Jesus say this as well? Once more, his words in Matthew 10 prove costly. If they are unworthy, shake the dust off your feet and go on. And by the way, do you know what that means to shake the dust off your feet? It's a message. It's a symbol of judgment. That's why Jesus says it will be more bearable in the day for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Because as God raised those cities, so he will do Unto you, you will be raised to the dust. That's the picture. The last thing we see, and as a tenth point, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That is those disciples they left behind. The apostles had gone on, Paul and Barnabas, but those who were left behind. Here is a common feature. I have a whole list of scriptures. I I don't. Well, let me read two of them. It's a common feature in Acts. That verse, verse fifty two. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, listen to this. Uh, chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. This is in the in the face, by the way, of persecution. So uh, in the same setting, we read that uh five forty one they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Or or just think I'll I'll try to do it by memory, this is not my strength, as you know. First Peter one verse eight uh, he speaks of joy uh in uh joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's the picture here. The church is under fire and yet she is rejoicing and full of the spirit spirit. And so the thought is this. This is a thought we need to latch on to. And that is that God draws near to his people at such times. We may be experiencing times of peace, but who is to say what might come? We find ourselves like the disciples in Matthew 10. We don't know what is coming. But we need to be ready. Let us be ready with this thought. Let us cheer our hearts with the thought that God does not forsake his people in periods of persecution, but he draws near. He makes them to be full of his spirit and to be full of joy. And by the way, uh, that is almost to speak uh, in a redundancy because the chief characteristic of the, the fullness of the spirit is this joy inexpressible and full of glory. Here is, by the way, the testimony of those who have suffered for Christ, not their sorrow, but their joy. And that's what Luke is telling us about. Well, there are 10 points that we find. I know that I've preached uh, a few 10 point sermons in my time, but not too many, certainly not on so few verses. Uh, But that is how it seems the best to me to present this, these theological ideas tightly packed together. But I want to close by drawing some spiritual lessons. And really the first uh, is, I think, the overarching point. If I were to say there is one overarching point, and I think the impression by now is clear from the sermon, is the importance of Scripture in explaining Christian experience, especially in difficulties. Uh, the, uh, Paul and Barnabas found themselves in difficulties. The apostles before that had found themselves in difficulties. The saints in Pisidian Antioch found themselves in difficulties. So many of the Christians of the first century did. But here's what we need to see whenever we find ourselves in difficulties and yes, even in minor difficulties, the mundane difficulties we find every day. Another thought for us to grasp and lay hold of, and that is scripture will always have something to say to us if we're living as we should. And even if we're not, it will rebuke us. But the man who is living in obedience, but finds himself baffled by his circumstances He needs to go back to his Bible and what he'll find is what we found in this sermon, that there are an abundance of passages that will speak directly to him and will even describe exactly the things that he is experiencing. And so my encouragement to you is that whenever you find that you are unsure what to make of your circumstances, you must expect to find the answer in Scripture. And this also tells us, by the way, the value of knowing the Bible. Because we will be full of ready-made answers in difficulties. The second lesson is that scripture tells us, I want to make this one especially explicit. Scripture tells us how to deal with opposition. The world, so much of the world is opposed to our message and our way of life and our commitments. And I think that we can find three answers uh, to dealing with opposition and and so often and by the way they are in order the order is important here but so often the church falls short because it only uh, lays hold of one of the three answers but I would say we only really know how to deal with opposition as the apostles did so much throughout their lives if we can see all three of these things and hold them in their proper order the first uh, quite obviously but it isn't the only is tenderness Again, you get the sense that Paul's heart was breaking for the Jews. You don't see it so much here, but take all of scripture together and you know that he was saying, God has rejected you. I turn to the Gentiles, but this is something that pained him tremendously. And so Paul was eager for their salvation. Paul had a burden for their souls. But just as soon as they began to reject his message, the next thing we see is a boldness in the face of opposition. You see, I, I talked about this earlier, about the man who goes from being winsome to severe. His tone begins to change. They're opposing the message. They're contradicting it. They're even blaspheming it. At a certain point, you become bold in the face of such opposition. You begin to denounce it. That's the second thing. But you don't. You see, you don't get there without going through the first point. And so many have failed because they were bold before they were tender. But here is something else that many have also failed to see, though you can never begin with the third point, and that is a willingness to move on. At a certain point, we realize that those whom we've been sharing the gospel with have been, well, they've proved themselves unworthy of the message. And there does reach a point at which we realize we are casting our pearls before swine. We're wasting our time. We are actually... Uh, mingling something that is unholy with that which is holy. There has to be a willingness at a certain point to move on. You don't find the apostles uh, staying with these people. But the final thing we see, if scripture tells us how to deal with opposition, let me close by saying this. The third lesson is that we must never fear what we may suffer for Christ. For there is great joy in it. That's what Luke is telling us. And I'm asking you whether you believe that. Whether that is your expectation. Whatever you might suffer for Christ. Whatever cost you may have to pay in order to follow him in this world. Do you realize that the joy will always far outweigh the earthly sorrow? If we are bold for him. So much of what I'm saying here. I'm thinking as I close of Matthew 10. If we are bold for him and we suffer for his name. His message to us is that we have nothing to fear in this life. Again, the man who should be afraid is the man who's going to hell. I think I said that in the prayer. But not only that. But he tells us, you see, it isn't just that we have the promise of eternal life, the promise of heaven. But he tells us that whoever confesses him, whoever owns him in this life, may expect him to own us both on that day and on the great day. That is today and on the day of judgment. We may expect him as he did here to pour out his spirit upon us, giving us boldness and words to say and joy inexpressible and full of glory. There's nothing to fear, Jesus says, for I will meet you there in the crucible of affliction and graciously bear you up. And yet, doesn't he also say in that same chapter that there is need for endurance? The the prospect of what we may suffer for Christ is a call to endurance. It always is in scripture. And yet. Do not lose heart, he says, or become afraid. Count it as a badge of honor to be treated as he was, but be assured, he tells us, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That is Christ's message to the church. That is my message to you as well. And having said those words together, let us stand together and pray, uh, uh, excuse me, and praise God by uh, singing him 424. And please stand.